Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to Kudzoo Vine for May 28, 2023. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you on the show. And uh, we're excited about a brand-new guest uh, coming on in about 20 minutes, uh, Bruce Bellman of um, a consulting firm up in D.C. is kind of going to come on, but uh, a lot of people are familiar with Bruce Mullman because he creates these quarterly slide deck presentations that are just one of the most fascinating things around. I don't think anybody does it um, as frequently or as well as Bruce Mullman, and he is getting attention all across the political landscape um, you know, Political Wire, Politico, any kind of political person in the know in D.C. or people that want to be in tune with what's going on in D.C. know about Bruce Mullman and his slide deck. So he's going to come on, tell us about how this got started, um, kind of his goals with it. And then we're going to ask him some questions about some of the recent slide decks because uh, the content on them is absolutely fascinating. So we're excited about that. Until then, we've got a few other topics, and a lot of times we'll plan out the show ahead of times, and something will come up. Well, this is one of those weeks where something came up. Really, later on Saturday, maybe even it wasn't really announced even until the evening, um, a debt ceiling limit deal was reached. Um, seems a bit tenuous, but this is after really no progress being made in a lot of ways. And it was announced that um, President Biden, Speaker McCarthy, had, uh, and then I'm sure other people involved, like uh, Minority Leader um, Hakeem Jeffries, came into this negotiation, and they have reached a deal to avert a government shutdown, and um, it'll have to be voted on next week. Tim, I know you've been following this closely. What are some of your thoughts and maybe some other details you want to add about this? Well, um, the... You know, the Republicans had really asked for a lot of stuff. They wanted uh, the $80 billion left over from uh, the COVID um, fight to to be returned uh, to the general treasury. They, they only got a portion of that. They wanted to... Uh, uh, do some heavy stuff with work requirements uh, for Medicaid. They they only got, you know, just part of that. Uh, they really only got a fraction of the stuff that they sought, and nothing really major. One interesting thing they agreed to, and I think the most important thing, is that the debt ceiling now will not be revisited for a couple of years. There probably won't be any heavy budget negotiations again until after the presidential election. 
So they're dealing with this now, and it's taken off the table now during election season next year, which really, really um, helps the president. It, it you know it, it it helps the incumbent party in the White House. They got enough, I suppose, David, for McCarthy to try to take some sort of a victory lap. He could say, well, you know, the president had said that there would be no negotiation, that this would have to be a a clean bill, and, you know, we held his feet to the fire, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, the president did originally say that. But um, the hardliners in... McCarthy's own caucus are not happy about it. We'll talk about the Democrats in a minute. Uh, And whether or not now we turn our attention to will it be voted out and will it be voted out in time? Looks like their new deadline, according to the Treasury Department, is the 5th. So... That's where we're at right now as we turn the the committee to vote it out and then get it to the House floor. He's promised his members three days to look at it, so we're going to be right up against the gun on this thing, and you know how much slower the Senate acts on stuff like this. So that's where we stand right now with an agreement I don't think the Republicans got a lot, and the president didn't give away a lot. So that's what we're Yeah, at. I guess well, we can talk about who won and lost this negotiation or how people lost, but first we've got to really talk about that is they have to move on this. They worked over the weekend. You know, um, People put in work in Washington on the weekend, which is a good thing. Now they've got to vote on this. Obviously, you know, some of those rules that um, the Republicans voted on to um, actually vote for Kevin McCarthy, they have X number of days to read things. So if he said three days, are they going to – if they count today, then they could vote theoretically on Wednesday, or does it have to be three business days, meaning they could vote on Thursday, or are they off one day this week because – you know, most of us well, love that congressional no. schedule where we get just random weekdays yeah. off all the time. Yeah, number one, he can call them back in at any time. It is my understanding that he talked with his caucus about this yesterday, and the president and the minority leader were going to talk with the Democratic caucus uh, today. Uh and I, I also the president made a, a statement, uh, a public statement about it uh, on television a few minutes ago. So so they're moving, and they, they're basically now waiting on the vote. It looks like the Republicans, if they get the votes together, are going to try to vote. No later than Wednesday, then they'd have to hustle it over to the Senate. Uh, and uh, you got a problem there in the Senate. You know how much slower it is. One member could slow this thing down and hold up uh, even a vote on it for, oh, up to a week. 
then you pass your deadline. Another thing that could happen, this bill could be killed in committee. You know, these things are normally voted out of committee along party lines. Well, you got three hardliners uh, (laughs) sitting on this committee, three hardline Republicans, and all of them might vote against it, which means some Democrats would have to vote for it. So you're going to have to look at that, too. Um, it, it, this this is not a done deal till it's a done deal is what I'm trying to say. Oh, yes, and I do think there's going to be a slice of the Republicans on the far right that don't vote for it. I think there could be a slice of Democrats on the far left that don't vote for it, but I do think um, the Democrats, by and large, aren't going to be a problem if, uh, you know, Keith Jeffries will deliver a decent number of Democrats because, one, the president got a win here, and two, this is probably the first big negotiation for Hakeem Jeffries. If the Democrats in the House were to help, you know, make this, you know, fall apart, that would not bode well for his leadership. And I don't think a lot of the caucus is going to want to hand him such a negative mark right from the get-go. Well, uh, the the speaker, as I mentioned before, came on the air, has promised that half of his he'll deliver half of his caucus. Well, that's um you know uh, 111 or 112 uh members right there that he's promised which would mean that uh Jeffries would need to deliver somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 or so now representative Payapow you know talking about progressive you mentioned them a minute ago and she said by no means are they on board to vote for this thing? You might have a, an odd coalition of the most liberal members and the most conservative members of the House posing this thing because people like uh, Chip Roy and um, some some of the others um, are, are it, it, it's just probably going to be a non-starter for them. Um, the, 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 so you, you might have, you know, 15, 20 members of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, so it's going to have to be a bipartisan thing, and I think each side is going to need to deliver, you know, let's say 110 uh, votes. you get, you got to have 218, so... They got to add Democrats and Republicans together and get it. Are there enough people in the center to do it? I, I think I agree with you, David. I could not imagine the Democrats uh, embarrassing the administration. I think that they that they would uh, that they 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 would largely sign on to this thing, and surely the speaker can deliver that 111 or 112 members that he promised. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, like, just looking at our state, 
I, I don't know that I could name a member I think would vote against okay. this. We got um, we got one in this state that's going to vote against it, uh, not a Democrat, but Andrew Clyde has already yes. said no way he's voting for it. Well, and I apologize, Tim. I meant a Democrat. I can't couldn't see oh, any okay. of the Democrats yeah, in yeah. our state. No. Don't lose I, mean, I can see Marjorie Taylor Greene vote against it, for that matter. I don't think um, she will. She's too tight with the speaker. And that is That's true, which really may hurt her brand. Um, so but Gates is a no down in Florida. He's already, you know, some, the, the, the ones that are saying there's no way in hell I'm voting for it have already said there's no way in hell I'm voting for it. And, and you could probably sit there and think about who they are and name them the most liberal and the most conservative. Uh, the question oh, yeah. is, what about the rest? And this is a totally different kind of dynamic because it's not like the speaker vote where Kevin McCarthy yeah. needed every Republican. He doesn't need every yeah. Republican. Hakeem Jeffries doesn't need every Democrat. Um, if, well, if let me ask on you this, David. Do, do you think somebody over in the Senate's going to be a wise guy well, the and Senate, try to the hold way, it up? Yeah, the way you describe it, it gets real tricky. As far as just passing it, you would think that, like, your more normal Republicans yeah, like Mitt, but, Mitt Romney but, would come on board. Yep. But and, they're under yeah. the gun to pass it in a certain length of time. Yeah. The Senate not only is a very deliberative body, but they have very liberal rules when it comes to the power that can be wielded by individual members. You know, individual members in that body can hold up nominations. Not only that, they can slow down floor votes. In this case, that would be devastating. We do not want that deadline to pass it could affect our bond rating and everything else we didn't hit the deadline in 2011 you know and it did affect our bond rating anyway so we we don't want any of those things to happen we don't want social security checks to go out late we don't want that kind of we don't want this to spill into overseas markets and 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 cause other countries to go into recessions, however brief that might be. Uh, so uh, I, I'm worried about I, I don't know who would pull a stunt like that, Cruz or Josh Hawley. I mean, there's a lot of yeah. folks you think that could do something like that. Now Ted Cruz, yep. the fact that Colin Allred does give him a decent test um, that that could keep Cruz in check. Um, but it, it, that is, you know, just like I said, it just takes one. Um, I mean, like a Tommy Tuberville. I mean, he doesn't even seem to understand basic functions of government. Well, um, a lot of them don't do believe something. that. A lot of them don't believe that deadline's real or that anything will happen. You know, a lot mm. of them don't believe that, or, or just don't care because they they have so little use for, you know, the way things function. And that they want to disrupt. They want to change mm-hmm. the status quo in such a way, you know, forget the con- you know, the, the consequences. Well, let's kind of talk about the winners and losers of this before we move, move on. And obviously I think, you know, at this point, no matter what happens with it, 
I think President Biden comes out a winner because he was able to get the deal done. That's kind of his brand is I understand how to work, you know, government and get things accomplished. I have worked across the aisle, and here is just a clear situation where he's done that. I don't want, mm-hmm. I just want to talk about another winner loser, um, and then uh, and that is winner Kevin McCarthy. As far as being a political leader, he gets a winner, but as far as being the Republican conservative firebrand, so many people in his caucus won't. This could be a political loser for him. So it's a weird dynamic. Um, Tim, who do you think are the winners and losers in this? Well, I, I, I think you, you hit the nail on the head with both of them. I'm also wondering, though, if Congress overall, because of this whole situation uh, and the presidency, are both damaged a little bit by it. I, I, that's why I kind of question the wisdom of doing any deal at all from the get-go because now the debt ceiling will no doubt in the future be a political weapon each and every time it comes up, especially when we are in periods of divided government. They're going to use this as a political football from now on. That's twice they've done it now. In the last 12 years, both times it was done by Republicans in the House with a Democrat, Democratic president, and I believe that's the dynamic you'll run into again. You did not see the Democrats giving Donald Trump a great deal of trouble when it came time to raise uh, the debt ceiling. They might have, a few of them said something, but they didn't. They didn't really push it or anything like that. Uh, But now you've got to wonder if this is going to happen all the time in the future. That's really, I think, the major downside of this. On the other hand, we had to get through this. The president did use his great strength, which is he was in Congress in a long time. He knows how the sausage is made. And Kevin McCarthy did prove that he could, uh, if, if, he, if he can deliver the votes now, then he has proved that he can at least do that much in a position of leadership in Congress. So you hit the nail on the head with both of them. Yes. Well, next week we'll either have had this thing move on and it really won't be an issue yep. for a while, or it'll be a crisis and we'll be back after it. But now we want to transition and welcome into the show for the first time, Mr. Bruce Melman. Welcome, Mr. Melman. Thanks. Uh, great to be on. Great. Um, well, Mr. Melman, since this is your first time being on the Kudzu Vine, we just want to start right off with just telling our listeners a little bit about your uh, political background. Well, you bet, uh, and it's uh, it's an honor to be on, uh, and I appreciate the invitation. So uh, my background, I'm like a lot of folks uh, in Washington. I've never been able to hold a job. So I came to Washington as a uh, as a lawyer, not intending to get into policy or politics or government. But Washington's such a uh, politics town, and it's always been an interest of mine that I had an opportunity to go work uh, for the Republican campaign arm in the House. So I became the lawyer for the Republican Congressional Committee. 
um, left there to go work for a uh, Republican member of newly elected leadership, a guy named J.C. Watts at Oklahoma, policy director. Left because I was very interested in technology policy, and that first tech bubble was inflating, so I went to Cisco Systems. Uh, then I crashed the tech bubble, and uh, suddenly it was uh, my, my, I was not going to own an island anymore by staying at Cisco. And I had a chance to go work for the George W. Bush administration as an assistant secretary of commerce for technology policy. And that both scratched the itch that I have on technology policy, but also something I've always liked about tech policy is it's, it's not all that partisan. Partisanship stops at the network's edge, and so it was a good chance – to work on things that I cared about with both Republicans and Democrats. And I finally left that 20 years ago and started what is now a uh, bipartisan government relations firm, nine Republican, nine Democratic professionals. Yes, I, I work in computer science. I teach computer science here in Georgia. And I can echo what you said about um, it being far less partisan. It is one issue where I see uh, Democrats and Republicans here in Georgia working across the aisle. Um, well, what really got our attention was you started creating these slide decks. You put them out every quarter. Kind of what got you started doing this, and what are some of your goals for them? Yeah, it's uh, it's among the weirder hobbies, my wife would tell you. And uh, and uh, I don't know if to be known for slide decks is, is good or, or uh, makes you kind of a master of torture. I, so what got me going way back when, I used to – I mentioned I worked at Cisco Systems. And back when we had a, a great CEO originally from West Virginia, a guy named John Chambers, um, unbelievably talented guy, amazing speaker, great salesman, and he's dyslexic. And notwithstanding that, he was able to, you know, be unbelievably effective. But as a result of that, one of the things I think he did is, unlike everybody else who does PowerPoint at UNIC where they kind of they write a memo and they cut and paste it and put it on slides, he would sort of narrate interesting visuals, pie charts, photos, or other things. And he would, he would use the visual to enhance the speech and what he was saying, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't bombard you with words that were distracting. And I just never saw anybody do it better. And so, you know, 25 years ago, I said, I'm going to be like that guy, or I'm going to try to be like that guy anyway. And so when I, all my whole time in government, I was given lots of speeches, and I would always do the, you know, no notes. You have the slides up there, and you're kind of walking on stage, and you're trying to get good at it. And it requires you actually got to put in a lot of time. It's easier to just write up some words and put them on a slide deck. But if, if you want it to be something that you're going to narrate, you need to – you know, when you, when it goes badly, it goes really badly. So you learn to prepare to make it not go so terrible. Uh, and what I found when I hit the private sector is uh, people kept uh, asking me after I would speak, can you send us your slides? You know, it was a really helpful way to think about the issues that you were talking about. And what I found is I would send it to them, and they would send it to other people, and I'm starting to hear from people all around town, you know, hey, we got these slides. Would you come speak to us? Or you know, next time you send out new slides, would you send them our way? And it kind of began a, a thing, uh, not definitely not a plan, uh, but it's gotten to the point now where, like, you know, gets me invited on to speak with you guys, and that leads to a whole lot of folks who are, who are putting on conferences or, uh, or events uh, seeking out my opinion. Um, I think it's been useful in, you know, we're a consulting firm, and I think it's useful because there are lots of consulting firms. It's a bit of a commodity. But this is a little bit different, so it kind of gives us a, a bit of a, a distinction in the marketplace. And I guess most importantly, I just like doing it. 
it forces me to think about uh, what I believe and what I want to say. And, and you know, and, and when the audience gets as big as it's gotten now, um, it, it goes from something I used to kind of hole up for a weekend and do and tell my family I'll see you for dinner. And now it's something I spend a lot of time, uh, you know, many, a couple of weeks worth, uh, nights and weekends and any gaps in the day that I can find to try to really think about what do I want to say and, and how do I want to say it and, you know, is it is it clear, is it compelling, what do I got to do to make a change? I suppose the downside, uh, I'm still shooting in the uh, in the high 20s handicap in golf, so uh, I should uh, maybe switch hobbies. <laughs> yeah, well, we're glad as, as political observers to, to have you having the hobby you do. Well, you've been doing them, you know, for sounds like decades now. But this political version that's really taken over the sp- political ecosphere, the Beltway, when did you start doing that more nuanced version? Probably about a decade ago is when uh, I realized that they were kind of making the rounds with or without uh, my wanting them to. Um, and so if, uh, if people were going to be sharing them and kind of getting credit for sharing them, I ought to be that guy. And so – it, you know, it's it's. A, I think it's a virtuous cycle, but you know, it's you, just like with your podcast. You know, you do it, and uh, and it's it's well received, and people say nice things to you, and and it makes you feel good about it, makes you want to put twice the effort in, you know, and that lets you get amazing guests like uh, Matt Iglesias. I know you got recently, and that you know leads to more listeners thinking it's valuable, and so it's pretty much the same thing for me over the last decade where. You know, the more I do it, and I, what I do is I put my email at the back, and I say, if anybody wants to sign up, just email me, and I'm happy to add anybody, and that goes for all your listeners, uh, although I would recommend you sample you sample it first. It doesn't cost anything, so the good news is if you hate it, you can just email me the next day and say unsubscribe or, you know, go away, and I'm happy to do that too. But I just – it's it's been a lot of positive reinforcement, and I guess last thought it – it's forced me to spend more time thinking about things, and I think that's made me a better consultant uh, because uh, instead of showing up and kind of having my own um, reiteration of the same news that everybody else just read and everybody kind of says, I'm often offering uh, perspectives that require you know, tens of hours of thinking about, um, which are just a little different. Yes, well, that's what drew me in. It, it is so. There's a there's a level of analysis and synthesis that's not there with a lot of other things. Well, let me ask you one more kind of global question about these slide decks before we get into some specifics of some of the more recent ones. And um, that is, I've I've noticed political wires picked up on it, politicos picked up on it. All these media sources are really sharing and talking about it. If you've heard of anybody and you can share. How high up in the levels of government are people talking about and referencing your slide decks that you've heard about? You know, it's uh, I don't uh, I don't have I haven't built the tracking system that you know that my ego would love to have. Uh, the people who have emailed me and asked to be added include elected officials. They include you know a lot of senior, particularly former senior government types. Um, and uh, and it's fun when you're doing what I do. You know, you're you're in a meeting with a congressman or a senator, and they recognize you and say, "Oh yeah, you know, I like your stuff." And you're thinking, "I didn't even know you saw this stuff." Uh, but you know, let's be honest. There's lots of really great products. There's you know, so Substack is just filled with all of these brilliant people, and it's fun to get them. Um, I uh, I love what I do, and and I do it as much for me as for anything else. I don't 
I don't think uh, I am. Uh, I have a particularly uh, uniquely powerful uh, readership. Um, I think, like everybody, when when I have a good one, it seems to make the rounds even further. And when I uh, when I have a normal one, uh, my parents say nice things, but you know, you never know who's looking. So I'm I'm happy with it because I think it makes me better at what I do, and uh, and the list keeps growing, and there are plenty of useful folks on the list. Uh, but uh, but I'll bet you know a lot more important people read Peggy Noonan or David Brooks every week. Well, I, I'll be honest. Out of the figure slide decks, then at least two of the authors you mentioned, and I'll tell you this: in our first topic, we mentioned leaders from across the political spectrum. But at the top levels of government, if any and all of those leaders have been familiar with your slide decks, I would not be surprised. They're that good. Um, I appreciate but, it. Yeah, let's get into some specifics. I want to ask you two quick questions, and Tim's got to host more questions about some of the recent ones. Um, about, about a year and a half, actually, I guess getting close to two years ago now, talk about um, polit- companies and political activism, and you talk about how it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, it's been going on for you know centuries, really, in America. But uh, we, there's been a lot of talk of it, and really more in the last few months than there was in 2021 when you talked about it. But kind of talk about that dynamic of there's, you know, like if Black Rifle co- uh, Coffee, you know, came out with a Cal- Colin Kaepernick line, they might get in trouble. Or if Whole Foods, you know, you know, pulled all the LGBTQ merchandise from their aisles, uh, you know, during Pride Month, they might be in trouble. But then for a company like McDonald's or Kraft that pulls from both of those audiences, it gets so much dicier. Um, how does a company navigate this new uber-political shopping landscape? Yeah, man, that's a great question, and it's something I spend a lot of time with companies on. You know, most companies I know start with their goal is to, you know, is to succeed as a business and to put out great products, and that usually requires – uh, them uh, both uh, hiring great people and retaining them and also uh, you know, continuing to innovate because it should be a competitive marketplace out there. What we saw, I would, I would personally tend to feel like it really started picking up around 2008, 2009, and two things happened then. There was a great recession, so the birth of the Tea Party on the right and the Occupy movement on the left, uh, as well as a whole lot, you know, growing dissatisfaction with the, uh, the way things were going for many folks on both sides. And then concurrently, that's when social media took off, especially on the, on the iPhone, which was launched in 07. And so for the next decade, you suddenly found uh, a rising level of dissatisfaction with the pace of change. The right of center said change is too slow. The left of center – I'm sorry, the left of center said change is coming too slowly. Uh, you know, why, are, why is there still so much racism in how we do policing? Why are women paid less for doing the same job as compared to men? The right of centers, the change is coming too fast. They say with all the immigration, they feel like strangers in their own country. The right of center says with all the political correctness, they feel like they're going to get canceled just for having an honest belief. Um, you throw into that environment the, 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 uh, the ability for activist groups to have brand attacks on social media that companies had, had prepared for, and what you find is you find the businesses started leaning in. So it was on the environment and, question, you know, and, and climate change and Greta Thunberg. Um, it was on school shootings. Uh, you saw it on those bathroom laws in 2014 in Texas and North Carolina, and some of those fights continued. 
It really crescendoed with the murder of George Floyd and the riot at the Capitol on January 6th, where business was really out there, feeling like they were hearing from especially their Gen Z and millennial employees and from others that they ought to weigh in. Um, Over the last probably year, year and a half, maybe two years, we've seen more of a backlash from the right. So companies increasingly understand that if you take a stand, you might take a punch. So you better have a plan. And I think companies are starting to think through what are the right issues to weigh in on. Um, Maybe it's sometimes instead of speaking for their employees, it's better to speak to their employees and to listen to their employees and to look for ways that as a business in the communities where they operate, they can engage as opposed to trying to engage in the, in the Twitter sphere and in the political, you know, Washington or even state capital uh, arenas where it's, where it's blood sport and it's ugly, you know, and some of these issues, I mean, the murder of George Floyd doesn't have a second side. It's pure evil. Abortion is a 60, 40 issue. Most companies don't want to offend 40% of their employees or 40% of their customers. And so uh, you're finding businesses are now realizing that these are neither, uh, you know, free opportunities to, to say what some of your employees or some of your uh, uh, customers want you to say, but they're also not, not always safe. And like you point out, if your goal is to appeal to all of the consumers, you know, you have to think about what's consistent with your brand, what's, you know, what are you trying, you know, what's consistent with the employees you've got, what are you trying to do, what are you trying to say, uh, where do you actually bring expertise and where are you howling at the moon? And, uh, and companies are working through um, when to weigh in and how to weigh in. Yes. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about before I pass it to him with all kind of more questions about slide, the slides is in the 2022 election wrap-up, you had a slide that um, talked about Ron DeSantis and how he outperformed Donald Trump among every demographic group. I mean, you did a great job laying out how he in Florida in 2022 did better than Donald Trump in 2020. But and you were, I think, dead on when you made that slide. Um, but now all the polls, including one today, showing I think uh, Donald Trump with a 42 point lead over Ron DeSantis. That. Um, finding you had has not translated into the larger Republican electorate across the country. Um, what has changed or, or what has um, Ron DeSantis kind of fumbled or Donald Trump done right to change that dynamic? You're right uh, that the performance of DeSantis in the 2022 midterms uh, against Charlie Crist in Florida was stronger across all demographics than the performance of Donald Trump against Joe Biden. But I think there's a lot there. First, uh, that was DeSantis against a Democrat, not DeSantis against Trump. Um, that was, uh, you know, the, the number one. Number two, I think uh, Pre- President Biden is a tougher opponent than uh, than uh, Charlie Crist. Um, you know, Donald Trump, if you're going to go fight Donald Trump, that guy's going to, you know, throw sand in your eyes and, 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 uh, and fight in a way that you're not necessarily used to. I think the, uh, the media environment in the Florida gubernatorial race for an incumbent reelect is a very different environment than the, the national and, and uh, arguably global, but certainly the national media race of a, of a presidential campaign. And so, you know, it reminds me of that old line in one of my favorite baseball movies, you know, welcome to the majors, Mr. Hobbs. Um, DeSantis, 
was success has been pretty successful as a governor uh, in the minds of enough Florida voters that he had a stomp of a reelect. But this is now uh, the poll you're looking at is among Republican primary voters, you know, who uh, right or wrong have a very high opinion of former President Trump, also at this point a Floridian. Um, and you know, last thought is is uh, I think uh, I don't know if Governor DeSantis just assumed. Um, that uh, that this would be easy, uh, or uh, or you know sort of hoped uh, that uh, that more Republican primary voters in polls in particular would see what he sees and what I think a lot of observers see that you know that while uh, Trump punches above his weight in primaries, he's been punching below his weight in general elections, and that led to the loss of the House in 2018, the loss of the White House in 2020, the loss of the Senate in 2021, and the failure to recapture the Senate in 2022. Um, I think he presumed that the, the sort of elite Republican types who see that and, and, and establishment types who realize that, you know, Trump may feel good, but uh, if, if you want to fight the other side, but he doesn't win. And, uh, and uh, he may win in primaries. He's actually been pretty successful at that, but he doesn't win in the general elections. He gives you Herschel Walker and, and, and uh, Dr. Oz, and, uh, and you end up losing seats you could have won. I think DeSantis thought that would carry him more than his own uh, capabilities as a candidate and his own performance. Um, it's uh, welcome to the majors, Mr. Hobbs. He's going to have to pick up his game mightily if he wants to uh, take down Trump in a Republican primary. All right, excellent analysis. I'm going to pass it on to Tim Shiflett for more questions. Tim? Great. Uh, good evening, sir, and thank you for being with us. I want to let you know right off the bat that when it comes to nuanced discussions of all things political, you have found a home here. I want you to know that. I, uh, for instance, drove my wife crazy yesterday and put my two large Labradors to sleep because I spent a lot, about an hour talking about every angle of Ken Paxton that you could think of. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's where I am. The, your, your, your latest slide deck is what I want to talk about first. And, and one thing it features is the emergence of China as a very dominant global power with regard to trade. As a result, is China's political power as dominant as their trading power is? Now, do those two things go hand in hand on a global scale? I'm not sure trade alone uh, creates dominance, but economic power is national power. Uh At the end of the day, uh, the reason the United States was able to turn the tide in World War II is because we were the arsenal of democracy. And our combination of our economic power, our manufacturing capability, um, just completely overwhelmed the Axis powers. And likewise, we won mm-hmm. the Cold War, I would argue, uh, because our capitalist free market competitive system simply outcompeted the centrally planned Soviet um, communist system. And so uh, having a strong and powerful economy has always meant uh, global uh, success and even dominance that goes to the Roman Empire, it goes to the British Empire, you know the Spaniards, the Dutch had their days, and that's that's been the core of our strength. And so I think part of what China has done, the Chinese Communist Party did, is they kind of went to school on the Soviets' failure and the American success, and they realized that you know just simply trying to be a communist country like the Soviets is not going to get the job done. 
What you need to do is you need to integrate yourself into global trading networks because that allows your economy to grow. And that gives mm-hmm. you the customers to build a manufacturing capability. And so for years, uh, China was, you know, it's been one of our the United States' top trading partners, and they were, they were able to grow their economy and bring literally hundreds of millions of poor peasants from the countryside out of poverty, out of abject poverty in China, you know, in, in a way that, that a lot of folks thought until maybe a decade ago was, was symbiotic. So their growth was good for us and our growth was good for them and that, you know, there was this hope uh, by the Clinton administration, the Bush, both Bush administrations, the Obama administration, there was this general hope that um, that uh, China could succeed and we could succeed and they would become uh, you know, more like us and less of a dangerous of a dangerous player, but I'm not sure that happened. Are we now in a new Cold War? So some want to use the phrase "new Cold War." Uh, it, it's maybe cold-ish. I mean, it, I'm not sure there's a clearly defined Cold War. There are elements of this that are absolutely Cold War-like. You know, we want to dominate; they want to dominate. We want to. Mm-hmm. We have our friends uh, around the world, and they have their friends around the world. Um, their, uh, the Soviet Union's approach was they wanted to turn everybody else communist. The Chinese approach is they want everybody to leave everybody else alone. So they want us to stop being the global policemen. They want to be dominant in Asia. Um, that's a little bit different. Uh, they still mm-hmm. want to trade with us, and we still want to trade with them. And, and you know, we had a – there was a literally, you know, the Iron Curtain. There was a total – or near total uh, lack of two-way trade between the United States and the Soviet Union, a few ag products and a few other things. But for the most part, um, they and their pals were trying to build a a successful economic system very separate from us and our friends, and and we won. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, there's a lot more economic integration. There is a lot more trading relationship. Uh, They take a different approach to their ability to succeed in the world. those things are, are different. There, a little bit, you know, the, the U.S. and the Soviet pretty early went to, uh, you know, went to fleets of missiles pointed at one another. Thankfully, we've not yet been at a point where it feels like, you know, at any moment we might go to nuclear war with China, and I hope we don't get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the thing I've been talking about China is something that you and, and I noticed Charlie Cook described as the four addictions in your latest slide deck. Um, And one thing I noticed interesting is that it would be very difficult to address these particular issues and, and find answers to the problems associated with them. In this divided political climate, do, do we – even have the political will in this country to address those four addictions right now? Well, gosh, I sure hope we do. And maybe just for, for um, context for those who haven't had a chance to see it, you know, the, the theory I, I tried to put forward is that we are uh, in the third decade of this century. And for the first two decades, mm-hmm. the world grew and increasingly became dependent on China for manufacturing, supply chain, deficit finance, on technology, on digitals, everything became digitized, networked, and automated. On easy money, because we've had really historically low interest rates and the Fed keeps buying up assets to stop the market from crashing. 
and on debt. We just keep piling on more and more debt onto the country, uh, let alone businesses and other countries around the world. And while all mm-hmm. four of those trends had offered upsides, uh, the downsides were generally ignored, and they've become uh, not ignorable anymore. They're unsustainable, but they're really hard habits to break. And so I try to walk through how each of those four, what I call, and Charlie also repeated as addictions, came about, why there were upsides, but what the downsides are and what makes them unsustainable now. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I, remain a, I remain optimist. I am really bullish on America long term and fairly bullish medium term. I'm just generally scared to death in the short term because we're going mm-hmm. through a period when uh, it's, you know, it's ugly and, and it's unappealing. I'm a believer that the other side is not a threat to my way of life. They're the loyal opposition. and I'll agree sometimes mm-hmm. and I'll disagree sometimes and I'll – you know, I, I thought I thought Ronald Reagan's observations right that if you can get seventy five percent of what you want, that's a win. And you know, you mm-hmm. take a deal and you come back and you try to get more later. And that's what the that's what the, the other side's supposed to be thinking too. Um, it, it's you know one one reason why I am not totally giving up hope here is just look, you know, last Congress. So not ancient history, not Reagan era, not you know FDR, but the last Congress, the hundred seventeenth Congress. Um, had a whole raft of bipartisan legislation that you know was was good and and uh, and necessary and and as noted bipartisan. So, um, well, even before that, Congress, of course, you had the, the Chips Act at the start of the pandemic, where you had 96 votes in the Senate. That is overwhelmingly bipartisan, tackling an unbelievably urgent crisis right in front of them. And so there wasn't people weren't you know, doing the usual idiotic posing on C-SPAN. They said, we need to get this done. We got to get it done. But last Congress, there were 69 votes in the Senate for infrastructure, 65 for gun control, um, 64 on the Chips and Science Act, 61, the the Respect for Marriage Act, recognizing it's a civil right to get to marry whomever you want to marry and that you love. Good for families. Mm -hmm. Postal reform, 79 votes. You know, the defense bills had almost 90 votes. So, I mean, I... That's just last Congress, and those aren't the things that the Democrats who were in control of all three bodies did on their own. They did a couple things, procedure reconciliation, where they didn't get any Republican votes. All the things that I mentioned were bipartisan, and you know more than mm-hmm. the that gives me hope. I think there's still when you work, you know, when you're outside the Beltway and you're listening to cable TV or on Twitter, you know, it, it's a total you know what show, and nothing can get done. But when you mm-hmm. actually spend time with these folks, you find most elected officials ran for the right reason, want to do the right thing, not just for their party, but for the, all the constituents in both parties. They'd like to get reelected by 100% of the vote. And uh, the, Twitter's not reality, and cable's not reality. They're angertainment, mm-hmm. and they have a business mm-hmm. imperative to get people outraged and pissed off, but that also gives this false sense of, of, uh, you know, of uh, ugliness that, that isn't the actual reality unless the cameras are going. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of one of the things you was talking about in uh, the slide deck was um, digital as being one of the four addictions. I, I know that my grandchildren will never know a world that is not digital, and they've never known a world that is not digital. Whereas when I was in high school and in typing class. You were the big shot in the class if you were the one person that got to use the one electric typewriter that day in the class. So, you know, uh, the the baby boom generation does obviously does not see 
the digital world as, say, Generation Z. But what I would like to ask you about is this. With the emerging problems that come with digital, do you believe that the digital world should be more, shall we say, heavily regulated by government? Uh, short answer, parts of the digital world need government attention. Uh, but uh-huh. you know, as with as with all four of the addictions that I try to drive through, uh, none of these are, you know, heroin or fentanyl. None of these are all bad. There is a mixed bag. So, you know, when I think about digital, I mean, first, to your opening observation, you're right. Our grand, My children, your grandchildren are digital natives. They've only known a, life, a world that has the Internet and, frankly, has smartphones. But – I only know a world that had TV, and uh, and I think for my own grandparents, they remembered uh, growing up without TV, you know, and maybe mm-hmm. they only knew a world with radio, and their mm-hmm. grandparents didn't know a world with radio, let alone, you know, airplanes, and, you know, th- there, there's just as with electricity, with airplanes, with refrigeration, with uh, antibiotics, um, technology, you know, vaccines, technology brings amazing improvements to the world. Um, and is overwhelmingly net positive and, and, and core to uh, to the success and thriving of the human population. But just because uh, we can invent, you know, amazing drugs and vaccines and, and, and you know, and uh, medications that people can take that, that uh, extend your life or, or reduce your pain or otherwise do a lot of good stuff, we regulate medicines. Because what we found in the in the Gilded Age in the early Progressive Era was, without any kind of government oversight or regulation, hundreds of people might die because there was no baseline required standard of manufacturing care, and there was nobody to say this is safe and effective. So as a country, we made the decision that um, that pharmaceuticals uh, were were really positive, but needed some kind of oversight so that unscrupulous people. Um, wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, cause death and mayhem, and that they'd be net positive, but but not in a totally uncontrolled or unrestrained way. And we have similarly rules about air, you know about cars. Can't drive as fast as you want. Can't drive wherever you want on the road. You have to wear a seatbelt. Uh, restraints on freedom in the minds of some, but overall, it makes for the net benefits for society to be greatest. Same with airplanes. Uh, and. We're at a point with digital technologies where the upsides are amazing, faster innovation, higher productivity, you know, a chance for new voices to be heard. You know, you guys, I love your podcast. It, it, you know, 30 years ago it wouldn't have been a thing. You guys would have needed a sponsor and you would have needed some, you know, one of those networks that had all of the power to do it. You guys now can be smart, thoughtful people and you launch your podcast and you find uh, listeners wherever. That's awesome. So, I start seeing a lot of net positive. You know, you and I know the negatives, more misinformation, monetizing outrage. We all are more cyber vulnerable. Uh, Kids are are often depressed. You know, there's the the bank run with Silicon Valley Bank was a Twitter-driven bank run. And so where I think we are is just like uh, pharmaceuticals and drugs weren't regulated and then they were. And, you know, and there weren't a lot of rules on cars and then there were. Um, we're getting to mm-hmm. a point where particularly artificial intelligence is becoming both ubiquitous and really powerful, and lawmakers are starting to realize maybe there ought to be some basic consumer protections, whether they're privacy or whether they're ways to try to not let people monetize misinformation. Maybe we need to just pump the brakes a little, not you know, not get rid of the Internet, not uh, stop uh, artificial intelligence or progress, but 
but also not act like, uh, you know, there are no constructive government interventions when it comes to technology because the entirety of history is there are and, uh, and mm-hmm. we're better off for them. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you one final question because you talked, uh, number one, about being hopeful of, of, about the future in this country. And you also taught, uh, worked for a fellow in, in Washington who had to unite the nation in one of its very darkest hours. And, and he certainly succeeded with, with his handling of the situation after 9-11. But uh, do you see a national politician on the horizon emerging for the future who you think could possibly bridge the gap uh, between all of our divisions? You know, uh, I don't have somebody on the tip of my tongue to, to you know, uh, to tout as the savior. Um, for what it's worth, I don't think I would have told you if we were chatting in 1979 that, you know, the answer is Ronald Reagan. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, and uh, I, you know, I certainly don't think uh, if it, I mean, if it were 1930 or 31, I wouldn't have told you that it's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, it's, Mm-hmm. Uh, history suggests that these fellas come um, uh, not quite out of the blue, but, you know, people didn't think Teddy Roosevelt was going to be who he was. And then he became president. And, and uh, you know, he was a pretty constructive figure in, in, in a lot of ways. Abraham Lincoln was generally thought of as a failure in more things than not uh, up through 18, uh, frankly, up through 1860, up through his election as president. He goes on to be maybe the greatest president in American history. So, mm-hmm. um I don't start with uh, a uh, you know the, the the name that I can say to you that is you know the savior in waiting, uh, but uh, but I read a lot of history and history tells me you never see that person coming. Um, you you know you, you you appreciate him in retrospect. A lot of Britons would have told you that Winston Churchill, his day had come and gone. That he you know he's a has been if you had talked to them in 1938. You know, he was this guy who kept talking. Of, he wanted to fight Hitler. He was this guy who kept talking about the uh, the Nazis, you know. And then mm-hmm. uh, and then Hitler proved to be who Hit- Churchill knew he was. And suddenly he is this extraordinary leader who leads uh, England in their finest hour. And so I think America, thankfully, continues to to build leaders just like that. And, and they're in businesses, and they're in government. And they're in communities, and in NGOs, and in roles all around us. And you know, we all probably know. At a, at a smaller scale, lots of wonderful people. And it's one of the great things about our country and about our society. You know, we need one of those uh, types to, to come to the fore. Let's pray it's not, you know, in, in the, the uh, cauldron of a world war or a civil war or, or a Great Depression. Uh, but uh, at the same time, a lot of the time, and you pointed out George W., you know, it's, I don't think people would have said he was a great president uh, until 9-11. And, uh, and, you know, not long after, we went back to our partisan corners in a lot of ways, so a lot of folks wouldn't say he was thereafter. But he rose mm-hmm. to the challenge at the time. And so he I think America did. has both a system and, uh, and, and a, a society that, that has lots of great potential leaders in waiting. Well, I appreciate that analysis. And with that, I'm going to send it right back to David. David? Yes, Mr. Melman, we can't thank you enough for coming on the Kudzu Vine tonight. Um, But leave our listeners with this. You mentioned sampling your slide deck. 
tell our listeners where they could do that and also where they might can follow you on social media. Sure. So I'm on Twitter at, if anybody still is, at BP Melman, <laughs> B-P-M-E-H-L-M-A-N. Uh, I'm happy to jo- have anybody uh, who's on LinkedIn and is a Kudzu Vine listener because they're all good people. Uh, link me in on LinkedIn, Bruce, M-E-H-L-M-A-N. Um, both my pin tweet and uh, regular, I will always post my slide decks, will let you get to the four addictions discussion. You could probably also Google four addictions Bruce Melman and you'll hit the slide deck. My suggestion is zip through it if you hate it. You don't need to email me. You don't want to email me because I would add you to the list of more stuff you'd hate. But if you thought it was interesting and it's something you'd like to receive, um, just shoot me an email and tell me, please, you know, I heard you on Kudzu Vine, like the slide deck. I'd love to receive them, and I will uh, add you to my list. All right. Thank you so much. And I'll tell our listeners, I can't imagine you dislike them. Plus, they're only quarterly. He's not going to send you three emails a day. It'll be one every um, three months. So that's also a, a, a much more manageable time frame. But, uh, Bruce, we thank you so much for coming on the Kudzu Vine, and hopefully uh, we can get you on sometime in the future and you can discuss more, some more of the slide decks you put out. Uh, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks. Have a great Memorial Day. You too. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, that was Bruce Melman. Um, you know, I can't recommend enough the slide decks. Uh, you went over extensively the latest one, Tim, but uh, some of the deeper one ends, are they're all good. And they all stay relevant for a, a period of time. It's not like, oh, yeah, it, two mm-hmm. weeks have passed, they're done. I mean, these things stand the test of time. And, you know, I hearken back to one a little over two years ago, and it was just as relevant today as it was then. It will probably still be relevant five years from now. So um, it's just really good, solid, long-lasting information. Well, Tim, we got just a minute or two more, and so obviously we can't get into a big, big topic like we planned. But let's um, let's talk about uh, one of our congressional chairs here in Georgia. Um, you've been a congressional chair in Georgia. I have too for the Democratic Party. This is from the Republican Party. Uh, she ran for um, office, ran for governor. Candace Taylor on her podcast. Uh, we share so many similarities uh, with her um, on her podcast. She really promoted the idea that getting people to believe the earth is round is a giant conspiracy. She's yet another flat earther. Um, before I even you, you can get into her, does it feel like there's more flat earthers today than there were 10 years ago? I don't know if there's more of them or they just have a a forum from which to – Pronounce that they are, and that being the Internet. These people can find each other now, and unfortunately they can also find us on social media to read some of the, some of the stuff they put out. So I, I, just, I, I, I think there's always been this type, uh, at, but they, they're just more prevalent because they're, they're on the Internet now. Yeah, and I'll tell you, I think a lot of people are going to hear me bringing this up, and they're going, oh, you're just poking the bear. You're just bringing some fringe character up. But here's the thing. I believe that, you know, 30 years ago, most people across the political spe- uh, spectrum really appreciated, you know, climate change, global warming as a thing. And then people started to pick at it. Um, you know, 
vaccines, the idea of vaccines were more, you know, accepted. And it seems like more and more things in science are getting picked at to where there's been more questions put in. And to me, the idea of a round earth is just, you know, poking at that is just mm-hmm. nonsense. Our whole calendar, our whole seasons, yeah. weather patterns, the way we travel. I mean, pilots use the jet stream. They go up where the earth is not as wide. You know, everything we do, everybody knows the earth is round. But yet, I just feel if somebody didn't check this, it's going to become more prevalent. Second, along with her, remember, she um, attacked that, verbally attacked that um, structure in Elberton, and next thing you know, it got bombed. So obviously, Mm -hmm. she has some reach with somebody. Um, Am Mm. I overstating her um, importance? No, uh, and this type of people, unfortunately, has gravitated more and more and more into positions of political prominence. Uh, I mean, she is the Republican First District Congressional Chair. That's a pretty plump position to be in for somebody that won 3.7% of the vote in a Republican primary for governor, and then she claimed that the system was rigged against her when she got less than 4%, and she refused to concede like anybody cared. Uh, but, but and, and I mean, she rode around with a bus that said, Jesus, guns, and babies. She calls her podcast that. She, this flat earth thing, she says there's biblical evidence to support what she says. You talked about that um, bombing of that monument and all that craziness she talked about with it. Uh, she, she, she just seems like a real nutcase. But again, this type of person is gravitating more and more and more into places of political prominence, especially in the Republican Party, and and I find that part of it to be a major problem, and I still think that th- that the Internet has given these people a prominence that they would not have enjoyed years ago, and, and I do have to lay some of the blame again on Donald Trump, David, because he made being in your face uh, an admirable thing that it should not be, and and her type's just like that. So, yeah. One final thing: she got elected pretty recently, and apparently, you know, Governor Kemp uh, did not support her. Um, not, and there's several folks like her, um, you know, got elected, and he's actually not even going to the, their convention this summer, or uh, maybe happening mm-hmm. time, and maybe more of a spring convention, but announced he's not going to go because of forces like Candace Taylor. So she's, and, and some folks, folks like her, are beginning to get even more power structurally um, in the Republican Party. So it's going to be interesting to continue to watch because you would think a gadfly figure like that would have just receded into the background. Uh, it's like she's getting more entrenched in that party structure, yet she makes, you know, outlandish statements like, um, you know, round earth is a conspiracy. Well, um, that's that's uh, our show for tonight. We did hear Catherine's going to be back with us next week. But until then, 
Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created.